You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So uh, let me begin by saying, I am not passionate uh, about this topic, Uh, but I am passionate about Scripture. And Scripture is necessary in shedding light on trends that seek to undermine truth. And I think every person throughout history has been motivated by the love of Scripture when they stood for truth in light of all the heresies that were being pushed. So this topic was not difficult, uh, primarily because the content forces you to learn a lot of new terminology, a lot of new vocabulary, but because when you spend time swimming in ideologies of this world, it's as if you're swimming in mud, and you only feel dirty when you're done. But when you spend time diving into this, right, into scripture, it's like swimming in clean, pristine waters. And when you get out, you're not only refreshed, but also cleansed. Unfortunately for us, this world is a mud pit. So there's not much you can do about that, except for bathe daily in scripture and at every possible opportunity. The truth is, that there is nothing better than this for exposing lies and revealing truth. And if we bathe daily in scripture, by doing this, we will not be confused when someone comes to us and tries to sell us mud, saying that it's water. Okay. So we are currently in the, in the, in the sermon series, Truth Over Trend. Last sermon was on social justice two weeks prior by Pastor Ovi, more specifically, critical social justice. Today we'll be speaking about a recently popularized term that goes hand in hand with critical social justice. We hear this term on the news almost weekly and sometimes more recently daily. That is critical race theory. And the first thing you're probably thinking, or maybe you should be thinking, is why Why should this be spoken about in church, right? I have been told multiple times, actually, recently, um, that this has no place at the pulpit. And in a a generalized sense, that is correct. Critical race theory is an academic and theoretical framework or tool for viewing history, our legal system, and society at large. So how exactly does this affect the church? The church has a goal of its own. The church's goal is to preach the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The gospel is meant to expose the sinful, corrupted, and fallen realities of this world and present the answer to it, which is Christ. And God is our standard. But when a tool begins to be accepted and used amongst our brethren, and when we as the church will be confronted by frameworks in society at large, like this framework, then we as children of God must be prepared to weigh and measure if it is congruent or incongruent with Scripture. So let's begin by providing some background. Critical race theory uh, is not 
you know, a, a word that just means everything bad that we can find in this culture. Critical race theory has been around actually for quite a while. It's not new. Most of us, have, it's new to us. We haven't heard it very often, but it's been around in academia for, man, a while, 70s, in the 70s. Um, and it has its roots primarily in critical legal theory. It had its formation after the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and challenged the idea that the past legislation and the proposed legislation for equality were not serving those it claimed, but were serving those in power and maintaining the status quo, that is maintaining their power. The skepticism of the system, the, the power system of today, right, should lead naturally to a desire to overturn it and the hierarchical system that, that, uh, that exists in this current society. But critical race theory is directly actually in line with this, but adds that the hierarchical system is not simply motivated by power, but that the power structure is deeply racist. And CRT states that racism is a social construct and has been construct constructed by those in power to oppress those that are marginalized. Pastor Ovi, in his review of critical social justice just two weeks ago, pointed out the underlying view of oppressor and oppressed. And this continues to be a central theme in critical race theory. Marx used the terms of bourgeoisie and proletariat, right, in his Communist Manifesto. Uh, simply put, right, the uh, upper middle class and the working class. Um, uh, the way that it's seen today is through the, the lens of anti-racist or racist, through uh, the lens of whiteness and through the lens of people of color. And the goal is to separate groups of people so you can find oppressor and oppressed. Now my use of Marx is not because I seek to attack critical theorists. They actually state that Marxism is a influence in their framework in the critical race theory. So it's, it's, it's not me trying to just make a blanket attack of Marxism. Marxism is one of many systems of thought that influence this critical race theory. So when we clarify this, whiteness is where power is primarily focused. Why? Because that's what we see in society. That majority of people that are in power are white. So if you fall within this non-LGBT, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and you are a male, then you are, you are privileged in a certain sense. You have a privilege, and this privilege is not benign. It actually serves to blind you. The privilege is not just, oh, I have these, these abilities that others don't. It's that it blinds you from the truth, and you are unable to see what's going on. And because you are blinded, you are not only uh, blinded to those facts, but you are complicit in the oppression of those that are marginalized, of people of color. So uh, those that are the oppressor are then forced to listen to the oppressed as they have insight into knowledge that is not blinded by privilege. The more oppressed one is, the more insight they have. So this is not a negative thing. We should listen to everyone. We should understand everyone's perspective. But when you put it on a, on a hierarchy of 
one has more truth or the other based on simply the skin of the skin color of an individual, you're heading down a uh, very interesting road, very bad road. Now, unfortunately, defining critical race theory, which we somewhat did in just just right now, it's it's still quite an endeavor. And, and let me try to explain how this is being used today and why people think it's okay to be used today. Um, and uh, it's pretty simple, actually. Let me ask a few questions. Are those that are oppressed, are, or are there those that are oppressed and those that are oppressed? The question is absolutely. Is it far-fetched to believe that systems of power and those that benefit from it would desire to keep their power? Not at all, right? That makes sense. Actually, we know this is almost always the case. As the same absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when granted power, it is extremely difficult to wield it. Because if, no one, if they don't have any good example of how to wield it, they'll be unsuccessful. Man in, inside of himself is selfish and sinful, and when given power, he will use it in a selfish and sinful way. Do we as a country have a history that is stained in sin? By sin, I mean a specific sin. Racism and slavery, 100%. Chattel slavery, the buying and selling of human beings as property, transporting them across oceans in boats, many of them dying on the voyage, being sold, separated from family, being raped, being whipped like animals, abused in any every way. It is nauseatingly evil what, what, what our history has in it regarding slavery. And to think not only that it's historical, but that throughout the world today, slavery continues to exist in numbers we couldn't even imagine. And uh, I believe there was, a, there was a, a, a number of close to 20 million that were just in 2019 sold in slavery in the world today. It's still going on. People are evil. We're broken. There were even twisted beliefs regarding biblical creation called polygenesis, stating that Asian, African, and Europeans came from different pairs. We didn't all come from Adam and Eve. No, because that means we would all bear the image of Christ, of God. So once you say there were multiple firsts, some can be seen as less than, right? Should we seek to overturn evil racist policies through the legislative process? Absolutely. You betcha. Is racism a social construct? Absolutely. How does the amount of melanin in my skin make me part of a group or another? Evolutionary biology shows that we all come from the same region, right? They all believe we all come from the same region in Africa. So even the world, through evolutionary biology, finds that racism is foolishness. There is no clear way to stratify people biologically by the, con by the melanin content or physical traits because we are a spectrum of human appearance and it makes it impossible for us to group us. Is racism still an issue in America today? Yes, of course. Why did I say that? Because it is alive and well in the hearts of many. The sin will continue to exist in every country and culture until Christ returns and makes all things new. Should we teach about the evil of racism, of the evil of slavery, in our schools, in our churches, of course. Because the Bible has things to say about it. So, congrats. You're sounding like you fit right in within critical race theory. 
sound like critical race theorists if you agree with all those, right? The problem is uh, it's not that easy. And this is what we find in, in the churches today. This is what we find in the general population, right? Because the terminology is, um, is hidden, it's hard to really understand what, what it is when you say that you believe in critical race theory. Right? You can easily defend all the questions I asked with scripture. This theory is unfortunately more insidious in that it redefines many of the terms that we understand. Anti-racist, white supremacy, racism, neutrality, meritocracy, and it uses obscure terminology like intersectionality and hegemony. At least for me, it's obscure. I didn't know all these things six months ago. I have no idea. So let's give some quick definitions. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I want to walk through this just so that we're not in the dark. Anti-racism. At first glance, right, it simply means I am against racism. Um, actually, actually, no. It is a commitment to actively dismantling systems and institutions that produce racism. White supremacy, right, believing that the white race is superior to all other races and should therefore dominate. Um, that is not the definition. Rather, it means beliefs, behaviors, or systems which perpetuate white privilege. And white privilege is a set of unearned advantages that whites experience um, relative to non-whites by virtue of their skin color. So simply because you have a certain amount of melanin in your skin, you have privileges that others don't. Racism. It is not the belief that different races possess distinct characteristics, um, abilities, qualities, so you can distinguish them as inferior or superior, but it is racial prejudice plus institutional power. And when you get this, you realize if those that are marginalized don't have institutional power, therefore racism cannot exist except for in one group, those that are in power, right? Whiteness is the only form of legitimate racism in this, in this view. This is okay, we all have the ability to redefine any words that we want. So they totally have the right to do that. But I mention this so that if you are reading on this topic and want to understand the literature, you may want to get a good grip on how CRT, critical race theory, has its own meaning for many words. I would point you to Dr. Neil Shenvey if you really want to learn about how incongruent scripture is with the word of God. He is um, an absolute genius uh, where I take almost everything that I've learned uh, on this topic. He's a wealth of information. Um, now, this is where things become clear. We talked about the redefinition of terms. This is where things become clear. Neutrality and meritocracy, right? Uh, these are mechanisms by which the ruling class conceals its self-interest. Neutrality, that means that if there is a law that is neutral in its wording or phrase towards a race or any oppressed group, it is merely maintaining the status quo. So therefore, it is racist. And meritocracy, a system that people are rewarded and advanced based on the skills and abilities and achievements, not on a class. This is also seen as a mechanism that favors those, that favors those in power. The problem is that the laws of God in scripture are neutral and they are colorblind, which is actually a negative term in, uh, in, in critical race theory. Because you will be judged based on your merit and not on anything else. God is directly opposed to partiality, and so should we be. So what they point out as an evil, God says it's a good. And when you look at scripture, 
The laws that we see, they are neutral, and they even tell you to be neutral, not to be, fa- not to be partial when you are applying His law. Leviticus 19.15, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Judge them as you would judge anybody. Another term, intersectionality. It's an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political ideas combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Now, he's talked about this two weeks ago. Intersectionality is something that you can rank yourself on a spectrum of how oppressed you are. So if you're of a certain race, if you're a woman, if you have children with disabilities, if you have a disability, if you, if you anything that could possibly cause oppression, if you can add those up together, you have more knowledge. You are able to give more insight. And as you get further away from that, you are not a person of color, you are not disabled, you don't have any of these oppressive traits, you are the one that needs to listen, not speak. So the, there's another word called hegemony, and it's the process by which dominant culture maintains its dominant position. Once again, something Obi's talked about, and I would, I would say, please go and listen to, criti- to Critical Social Justice by Obi. It's, it's an amazing sermon. Um, but critical race theory, another, another interesting part, is that it is skeptical and critical of the current Western view of epistemology. And when we say epistemology, it is the theory of knowledge, how we distinguish between justified belief and opinion. So this includes objectivity, rationality, reason, and instead focuses on experiential knowledge, which we've already talked about, of people of color. So if you can imagine that. Um, it sounds very similar, if anyone knows, in, in postmodern a framework, in a postmodern framework, skeptical of everything, especially the Judeo-Christian worldview, which is technically the Western worldview. So we already know it's, it's, it's not an alignment. So why is it that people of color experience more knowledge, right? Because the source is equally as important as the content. And dissent, if there is ever any, is explained away. That is to say, if what someone is saying does not match up to that person of color's group, identity, then they have simply consented to the racist power structure. That's a lot, right? It sounds like I'm just talking idiocy almost. Um, because it's, it's, it's everything is redefined. Critical, critical race theory is also, this is, this is a problem that um, we, we have to mention because uh, you cannot separate certain things that we find to be beneficial from the underlying uh, negative parts of critical race theory. And why do I say this? Because they say this, okay? So let me, let me explain what I'm saying. Critical race theory is also inextricably linked to other forms of oppression, including oppression through gender, class, immigration status, surname, visible physical traits, sexuality. So by saying that they are inextricably linked, this is the words they use, inextricably linked, they mean that they are permanently entangled. There is no saying, I want to use it for the good and throw this stuff out. Can't be, they're they're linked. You cannot be an anti-racist and both deny certain parts of of it. That That in and of itself should show us that it can never be in alignment with scripture. Why? Because it 
pushes forward feminism, gay rights, right? Trans rights. The issues we're seeing that and we'll be talking about actually in next week. These these perversions of, of truths that God has that God has explicitly stated in Scripture. So they all promote sin and they deny scripture's clear commands. Now, the church and theology are not exempt from critique. The theological truths that we hold to are in, are in question, as they have originated from primarily white theologians, and some of them even held racist and anti-Semitic beliefs, right? They hated Jews. Um, they said that white people were of a higher order than black people. But how do we then fix this? Based on critical race theory, we should listen to more of the theological interpretations and perspectives of other racial groups. Problematic, isn't it? It's like saying, because mathematics was primarily studied and furthered by whatever power system is in place, it should be weighed in light of how others, of how other marginalized groups interpret mathematics. The problem is two plus two equals four, no matter how you spin it. Theological claims are of the same nature. They are truths that if reinterpreted become incongruent with the whole of scripture. It doesn't matter what the color of the skin was of those that read and expounded on it. The problem is that the, the critical race theorists don't ask where within a certain situation was racism existent. They ask how was it existent. So they see it everywhere because it is everywhere by their definition. It has affected everything, including the church, including theology. So in their pursuit of destroying racism, one needs to become focused on race. Okay? And this should begin when the child is very young. If anything gives you any idea of where our culture is at and where it is going, I think a good place to go would be in your, um, in your local bookstores, uh, and, and even look at the, at the new cartoons that are being put out for kids, right? The way they want to teach kids. And uh, I, wa I want to show you something very interesting here. I found a book. found a book, and it was at, it was at Target. I said, I'm not going to buy it. This is what it's called, right here. So, Anti-Racist Baby. This is the book. And if you read through it very quickly, if you read through it very quickly, it's actually sort of nice. I like the pictures, nice colors. Um, the messages are not overtly, uh, overtly bad, um, mostly because they don't go into definitions. They use definitions that for us seem like good things, yes. right? But when you look deeper, you realize that almost everything is a perversion. It is, uh, it, it's a problem, it's problematic. So when you are told that this kind of teaching, this critical race theory, isn't in our schools, it's purely in small pockets of academia, Pick up this book and read it. It states that it is a fallacy that children are colorblind. It tells you to help your child explicitly name the races of people around you, around them, so that you can ask them what they think about those different race, racial groups. So this is what it's asking you to do in the back of it. Um, let me try to understand what they're saying here. They want us to teach our children to stratify people by race, and then see them through the prism of a group rather than an individual. This sounds familiar. Yeah. I mean, um, does it not sound familiar to you guys? No. It's exactly what racist ideology does. It's exactly the same thing. 
So maybe race can be discussed with our children when they can understand that race is a social construct and not a biblical way to view people. But this book also explains that we must teach our kids that there is no neutrality, that you are racist or anti-racist. It teaches kids to knock down the stacks of cultural blocks, which is in line with CRT skepticism of traditional values, the things we, we know at the church holds to, traditional values. So let's see here. And it also explains that an anti-racist is bred to transform society. Of course, nothing is well-defined. So what is neutrality? They don't tell you. What are the cultural blocks that children should be bred to tear down? What kind of transformation should children be raised to create? Those are not present because those are the point of greatest contention. So not only is it insidious because it redefines terms and hides within things that seem good, right? It is also seeking to reach children before they are even school age. I mean, who, who doesn't want their child to be anti-racist, right? In the way that we can understand it. It's good marketing, plain and simple. But we must be gracious and loving with our brothers and sisters that have adopted this tool out of love and compassion for the oppressed. But we must not allow a generalized view of this theory that states it is only being used as a way of understanding race to go forward without being exposed as what it is, evil. The devil is in the details, right? And the details of this theory are poisonous to those that consume it and to those that spread it, it's, it's poison. So let's change direction. We spent a good amount of time. Let's change direction and get to scripture. Because scripture is the best framework for interpreting reality. We as Christians should have no trouble explaining the sin of racism and how it is incongruent with God's plan. We should know how the Bible groups humanity in contrast to the view of oppressor and oppressed. We are fortunately blessed to have direct revelation from God. And God's framework is the only framework that creates functional and fruitful society and culture. And when scripture is not our primary source and lens by which we interpret the world around us, we will fall blindly into the pit, right? Matthew 15, 14. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the pit. And once again, right? I want to be gracious because the Bible itself reaches extremely wide in the way that it can be applied to the world around us, but is also immeasurably deep and that it speaks of the condition of the soul and our nature, and not only reveals creation, but its origin and creator. The Bible I hold right here in my hand, 1,167 pages, filled with more than we can digest in a lifetime. So maybe we can say that they have not studied enough to see that scripture would clarify all of their confusion, all of their issues, right? It would clarify it all. If only they would dive deeper into it, Unfortunately, all one has to do is read the first few pages. You don't have to dive deep. It's, it's, it's there. And we, we'll go first to creation. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. I'll be reading through it. 1, 24 through 28. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, according to their kinds, 
livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Reading through that, sometimes maybe you don't see it, but we can see that God creates an intentional, he creates in an intentional way, with purpose, and is extremely evolved in creation. This is not a hands-off approach. He is involved. And we see that when God created man, there is a significant difference. He created man to bear his image. We are not merely animals, but are of a greater order, and we are to have dominion over the animals. So the belief that other groups are less human, or only partly human, cannot be derived from Scripture. We don't see any mention of that. We as human beings, no matter how we look or how we are born, are made in the image and likeness of God. So God created man in his own image, and male and female, he created them. God clarifies that both male and female. God established a binary system, not a spectrum. We'll get into that next week. So we are created in his image, neither female or male, are greater than the other, or of greater value. We equally bear the image of God. So sexism, feminism, all of these things can be answered in creation. And because in his creation there is one man and one woman that were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth and subduing it, we see that we are all from one lineage. And to treat any human being as other because of any physical characteristic is completely against scripture because we all come from that same pair, that same couple. So from the words that gave birth to creation, I want to take us um, into the words that gave birth or the, or, or the initial creation of the church. And we can, uh, we can see that even in the beginning of the church, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, racism and partiality is incongruent with God's plan. So Acts chapter 2, uh, I'll read quickly through this here. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like the sound of the the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there was, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they are asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? They were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, 
Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the word of God in our own tongue. What is beautiful about this? The way the gospel was first declared, the good news of God in, in this passage, is a picture of how it is to be declared from there on out. Without impartiality. Colorblind. Right? It's seen as a negative thing, but for us it is not. That's how we are to preach the gospel. Indifferent to the racial ethnicities in front of us. But let me tell you that the Spirit of God in the passage above put no emphasis on ethnicity, skin color, sex, or one's wealth or lack of, or lack thereof. It was, it was blind to all differences and preached the good news with impartiality. How can we ever think that it is good to emphasize race when the church began in direct opposition to that? Don't get me wrong, we see forms of racism spring up even in the church. We see Peter, right, being partial and not sitting with the Gentiles, but going with the Jews. And what is the correct way of dealing with that? Confronting it instantly. Saying it has no place within the body of Christ. Right? And that's what Paul does. But whenever, whenever we look at God, we see, even though man is broken, we see that he is moving in direct opposition to any kind of partiality. So this passage is not only descriptive of a miraculous event, but a picture of the prescriptive command of Christ in the Great Commission. It says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always the very end of the age. What do we see here? There is one authority and one that receives worship and that is God. All authority is Christ's in heaven and on earth. And like Pastor Olby said last or two weeks ago, the twisted reality of seeing the world by oppressor and oppressed makes it clear that the greatest oppressor would be Christ, as he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth, and we have none. But thank God that he has all authority. Because in the light of Scripture, we have oppressed ourselves and the others around us. And God, the source of all power, has provided liberation. We also see here a clear command to make disciples of all nations. This is not because Christ, I want, I want us, this would probably be how, how someone that has this framework might even see some of these things. I, I don't want to say that necessarily, but it's possible. Um, we have the command to make disciples of all nations. This is not because Christ saw racial differences and was motivated by the desire to have a thoroughly diverse body of believers. Christ did not intend that. He was not interested in that. Diversity was not the goal. Christ only saw one group of people that as image bearers of God that were bound by a disease that leads to death and that disease is sin. Mark 2.17, when Jesus 
heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And guess what everyone is? A sinner. There's one group of people. The beauty of the gospel is that instead of separating people by racial group and degrees of oppression, it unifies us in that we are all evil. None are good. <laughs> right? That truth is not one that rolls off the tongue easily for most of us. And it shouldn't be. Because outside of Christ, it means eternity separated from Him. It means damnation. Romans 3.11, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the Bible refers to us as all, because the human condition is the same for all. It is a sinful one. But God also treats us independently in our relationship with Him, or lack thereof. And thank God, there is no meritocracy in salvation. Because none of us deserve it. But let me tell you, there is merit in judgment and in reward. And God will give you what you're due. He will judge every person according to their sins, and not the sins of their family, or their country, or race. And similarly, he will reward his children based on their obedience to him in this life and not for any other reason. You can't stand on anything else. Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. And now we get into redemption. We see that there's no other category for, for how one is saved except by putting their trust in the atoning work of Christ. And the atoning work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. We can leave the oppression of sin and find true liberation. So as a recap, Christianity, right, or the way that Christianity stratifies groups is really in one way, but it's also three different ways. It is through creation. We are all image bearers of Christ. So we are stratified in that way. We are separated from God. God is one group, we are another. We are the sinful ones. And we bear his image. Right? And and also in, in the sense of sin, we have all fallen. Right? We all come from Adam and Eve, and we are not section not stratified by anything other than our lineage there. We are also all sinners and fallen and are oppressed by our own sin and are blinded to the truth of Scripture. And in redemption, we see that we are loved by God and that whoever believes receives salvation. So once again, it says, which we all know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So in creation, in sin, and redemption, we are made into one group. Because there is only one group. So, um, why is this attempt at equity? Through being anti-racist and creating a new system of power that stands for marginalized and oppressed people, a problem for Christians. Why is it a problem for Christians? Because Christ has no part of it. 
It is devoid of Christ. When our lens through which we view the world is not stained by the blood of Christ, it ends up being stained by our own blood and the blood of those around us. What do I mean by that? In our pursuit of fixing what is broken, outside of the Christ way, of Christ's way, all that results is pain and more suffering. And we see that throughout history. When we attempt to resolve inequity, it leads to one thing, bloodshed. Either it is by those in power abusing their power, or by those that revolt, who then become the new system of power. Communism killed as many as 100 million people. Right? The French Revolution, 40,000 people. The Holocaust, estimated 6 million people. And abortion, disguised as a form of compassion for the woman that has that child, right, to be able to choose, has killed only, since Roe v. Wade in America, this, this figure, 62 million unborn children. It is a vicious cycle outside of Christ. The problem is that the motivator is almost always hatred. But it is done under the guise of justice and compassion for the oppressed and marginalized. There has only ever been one true picture in which justice and compassion brought about life, not death, and truly freed those that were in slavery from their chains. That is in the cross. Philippians 2, verse verse 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So instead of executing justice by destroying those that do evil and those that trample upon what is good and righteous, I'm speaking of myself and you guys here. He took our place and our sin and paid by his shed blood. And in heaven we have we see the ultimate picture of harmony amongst all people groups. It, which really is going on today in the church. It may not appear like it, but at a spiritual level, as brethren in Christ, it's already existing here on earth. After the Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beautiful. So we must view our world through the prism of Christ. Because if Scripture and the Gospel take effect and change our hearts, these other systems of beliefs are revealed to be what they are, and that is attempts by sinful men to do what God has perfectly done through His Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, 
The best man can do is behavior modification. But Christ goes deeper. He gives a spiritual transformation. And if you do not have a relationship with Christ this morning, I don't know if, if there is anyone here. I want to let you know that you are not here by coincidence, but by the favor of God. And the very same hands that were nailed on the cross for your sins and all my sins and our sins are reaching out to us today. There is no salvation outside of him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He will heal your brokenness. He gives sight to the blind and brings the dead to life. He has known you from before you were born. And he desires to offer us eternal life. If you are not in good standing with your creator and you are convicted, don't delay. Come to him. So, let's remember, and let's have this on our mind, that the most important thing we can do to stand strong is to dive deep into this word, to soak it in daily, and to stay in personal, prayerful, deep relationship with our Father. Amen. Let, me, uh, let me lead us in a prayer for, for closing. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.